that follow the ten words of the covenant as we heard them earlier today. How are these commandments divided into two parts? The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. And then 94 will be the focus of today's message. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love fear and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder what your emotional response is when you hear the word law. Or what your response is in your heart when you think about the fact that for the next 10 weeks or so, you're going to have a series of sermons, once again, addressing the 10 words of God's covenant law. You might think, didn't we just do that? So why do we have to do that again? Is it really necessary for us to constantly be exposed to teaching about the 10 words of God's law? Is this a word that makes you happy? Or is it a word that perhaps feels a little oppressive? I suppose many people would say, and, and there's a good instinct in that, many people would rather, rather hear about grace, they might say, than about law. And if someone says that, don't dismiss them out of hand, but take the time to hear what they mean. And maybe respond with some biblical depth. Sometimes people respond negatively to God's law because it makes them feel like failures. Whereas when they hear proclamation of grace, that makes them feel liberated and joyful and able to go out and be thankful to the Lord. Now it is of course true that nobody will ever enter the kingdom of heaven because they have done such a wonderful job keeping the commandments of God. Uh, There is no such person to begin with. And even if there was a person who did a particularly fine job of keeping the commandments of God, at least by our human reckoning, it would still not be something that would gain him admission to the presence of God. We know, because we are Reformed Christians, that we are saved by grace. We're saved by grace alone. We're saved by grace apart from any consideration of our works. We're saved through faith, and we're not saved by what we do. But this afternoon, as we look at Lord's Day 34 and the first commandment, I want to put it to you, dear brothers brothers and sisters, that, that actually there isn't such a sharp disjunction between law and grace. In fact, the Old Testament presents God's law to us as a gift of his grace. The Old Testament says that when God gave his people the law at Mount Sinai, this was a wonderful expression of divine love. After all, the Lord had redeemed his people from Egypt. He had brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. He had set his heart upon them. He told them at Mount Sinai, you, you Israelites whom I have delivered from bondage, you are the apple of my eye in whom I take delight. You are my people. 
and I have bound myself to you with a covenant of love. And then God gave them the law. How could anyone say the law is anything but a gift of God, the gift of his grace, the gift of his kindness? It's God saying to his redeemed people, I have, I have set you free, and now this is how you live a free life. You're, you're not property of Pharaoh anymore, bound to do what Pharaoh tells you to do as a cruel tyrant, but you now belong to the Lord Yahweh. He's your Lord, and he's a good Lord, and he's a wise Lord, and he's given you freedom, and this now is how you live a free life. And then comes the first commandment, you shall have no other God before me. And so, it's true that if you don't yet know God as your Redeemer, if you don't know Jesus Christ as the one who has set you free from your bondage to sin, from all those chains that were hanging around you, um, weighing you down, if you don't yet know Jesus as a great liberator, then indeed the Ten Commandments will be very oppressive to you. And they will feel like a heavy weight and they'll be like a hammer of God crashing down on your pride, your arrogance, your egotism, your self-centeredness and all the lusts and desires that you have that are out of control. God's law will hammer away at that and break down your pride and your ego. But even that is a gift of God's grace, isn't it? It's not gracious of God to just leave you in your arrogance and pride. When God's law hammers at you and smashes your pride and your ego, then at the end of the day, you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, because what an impossible human I was. I must have been so offensive to you in my pride and arrogance. And so thank you for breaking me down and showing me your greatness and my comparative smallness. So if you don't know Jesus, the law will crush you. And if you do know Jesus, then the law will guide you. The law will bless you. The law will be a light on your path. The law will show you the way of Yahweh, the way that you should follow, the way that you should walk in order to continue to experience God's blessing and care upon your life. So in the law of the Lord, the Lord says, this is the way my free people live and don't swerve from that way. Don't swerve to the right and don't swerve to the left. So today in that context, we will look at the first commandment of the law and we will see the true goodness of this law and we will see the blessing that there is in keeping it. So this commandment declares to us very boldly and directly that we must not have any other gods in our lives besides Yahweh the Lord, the God who created us the God who sustains our lives every moment, the God who has given us the Lord Jesus. Sometimes people have said about God, he must be the world's greatest egotist because he wants everybody to worship him. Like what kind of a God is that that has to have everybody bowing before him? If you knew a human being like that who wanted everybody to bow before him, well, you'd have some very good words for that person. I'm sure you would find those words very quickly. We have lots of choice vocabulary to describe people who want everything to revolve around them. And so sometimes atheists make fun of the first commandment and they say, what an insecure little God you Christians have that he can't handle it when you look elsewhere. 
He just can't take it if you give your trust and loyalty to anyone else besides him. He's got to be the center. What kind of a God is that? Such an insecure God. You know, I read these very things this past week in an essay by Richard Dawkins, actually. That's, that's exactly where this language comes from. He's making fun of the Christian God who, who must be an insecure God. So what would you say to that? Well, if God was a creature, then of course we would say, well, yes, any creature who needs to be the center is seriously deluded. But God is not a creature. God is the creator. God is the one who gives life. And therefore, it makes perfect sense that God wants us to acknowledge him as the source of our lives And God lets us know that only as we acknowledge the truth about our existence, namely that we come from God, only then can we possibly have a good life, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of harmony and good order. Not only is God the God who gives us life in creation, he's also the God who gives us eternal life in Jesus Christ. And since God is the only source of life and the only source of redemption, the only source of eternal, eternal life, therefore it stands entirely to reason that the Lord would say, you need to acknowledge me because I truly am the source of your life and I am the source of your salvation. And if you don't acknowledge me, then your life is going to be eternally frustrated because you're going to be out of step with the truth about who you are and your place in the world. Now the sad reality, of course, is that idolatry is very common in our world. We could even say that idolatry is the most widespread sin in the world. And it's a little bit harder for us to see that today because we don't live in a, in a world where there are temples to various deities on every corner of the street. You could go to an ancient city like Corinth and walk down the main street And there would be literally 30 temples, sometimes 40 or 50 in the bigger Greek and Roman cities. And you could see people turning aside from the road and going into the temple of who knows who. And then you know they were an idol worshiper. You would know that they're not people of Yahweh. They're not devotees of the Lord Jesus, but they're devotees of some other deity. So it was very obvious But as we will see, idolatry continues to be a sin to which humans are inclined. We have many substitutes for God. And even as Christians, we are very prone to falling back into the sin of idolatry. Now it's important as we develop this theme to realize that idolatry is not just one sin among other sins. It's the first commandment for for a reason. Idolatry is the first sin. It's the primal sin You could call it the mother of all sins and you wouldn't be lying. And let me, let me flesh that out for you briefly. Let's imagine that you uh, sin against the Eighth Commandment. You, you go and take something that isn't yours. Maybe it's from your employer, your neighbor, or whatever. Maybe it's out of your dad's wallet. Um, you just lift something out of his wallet and you hope he doesn't notice one day. What are you really saying if you steal? What you're really saying is, I don't trust God enough to believe that he can take care of me through the ordinary provision of whatever I need through loving people, through my job, or through the, the charity of the Christian church. 
Now, I don't trust God to take care of me in those lawful ways. I have to take the law into my own hands, and I have to violate the law. I have to steal because I don't trust God enough to take care of me. You see, that's really the, 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 the source of the sin against the Eighth Commandment. Or what about if you're a person who, although you don't steal, you're just not very generous, and you find it really, really hard to give It's very difficult for you to open your wallet or your checkbook or your bank account and e-transfer some money to to the church or the deacons or a worthy charity or your local Christian school society. You, You just find it really hard to be generous and you like to cling to your money as tightly as possible and you relinquish it only very reluctantly. What's going on if you're not a cheerful giver? The Bible says we should be cheerful givers. Well, if you're not a cheerful giver, again, what you're saying is, I don't trust God to bless me if I just do the right thing. I don't trust God to bless me if I just do what God does. God is a generous giver, and I need to be an imitator of my God, and I need to be a follower of my Savior, Jesus Christ, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to give generously, and I'm not going to worry about every penny, and I'm not going to be so concerned about how I'm going to pay all my bills. I'm just going to be generous. Then you are trusting God then you're saying God is great and God is glorious. God wants me to be generous, so I'm going to be generous and I'm going to trust him to provide for my needs. What about if you sin sexually, whether you're married or not married? What are you saying if you have an affair? What are you saying if you engage in sexual relations outside of marriage? What you're really saying is, I don't trust God to bless me in the bond of my marriage. Or I don't trust God to bless me as a single person who doesn't have a husband or wife. I don't trust God enough that he will be sufficient for me in my situation and he will fulfill the longings of my heart and he will provide for me. No, no, I don't trust God that much and I have to grab what I can grab in order to be fulfilled. After all, it's only human to desire, right? What about if you're telling a lie? If you're bearing false witness? What are you saying about God if you're telling a lie? Well, he's a God of truth, and he wants you to tell the truth. But you're not trusting God to bless your speaking of the truth. And so you think you, you have to take, your, take care of yourself better than God could take care of you, and you have to care for yourself by telling little lies or bigger ones until sometimes you don't even know the difference anymore between a lie and the truth. Lying flows from not trusting that God will bless you if you are his imitator by bearing always a true witness. And so we can go through all the commandments. Think of, think of what we're doing today. We're taking time away from our jobs and the running of our households, at least to some degree, and we're just, the world would say, we're just being idle. And I know a, a certain oriental man who is a, a friend of me and he thinks Christians are lazy because they just take a day off every week. Like you could be out there doing something productive. And here you are, you just go and take a day off. And you sit in an assembly of people and you hear talks. You should be out working because for him, working is God. What are you saying if you don't observe the Lord's Day? What are you saying? Well, you know, I, 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 I got to keep things going at work. And so you just start compromising. You go to work and... Maybe you do it initially reluctantly, but then after a while it just becomes a new normal. 
Well, you know, you're saying that you don't trust God to provide for you through the six days that he calls you to labor. No, you don't trust God, so you have to work the seventh day also in order to make sure that you have security in your life. So every other sin flows from the basic sin of not trusting God, and that sin of not trusting God is what idolatry is all about. And perhaps you can understand now a little bit better why John ends his first letter with those surprising words, little children, keep or guard yourselves from idols. You know, when you first read through 1 John, maybe you're just doing it for your own devotions or in your family circle and you're reading through John and you come to the last verse, it's like, what? what's that got to do with anything? It seems like a very surprising way for John to end his letter and it seems initially to come out of nowhere. John, why are you all of a sudden talking about idolatry? But actually, the more you think about it, the more it is so fitting. Because John's letter, from beginning to end, is a testimony to God's marvelous work of redemption in his Son made flesh, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. The whole letter of John is so totally god glorifying and so magnificently Christ-centered. But if we ignore the last verse of John's letter, then all the previous <coughs> excuse me, chapters and verses of this letter will be of no value to us. I think John puts this verse at the very end of his letter because he wants us to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ and idols cannot coexist in our human heart. If we don't keep ourselves from idols, then we can't keep Jesus. That's how serious this is. If we don't keep ourselves from idols, then we can't keep Jesus. That Jesus whom John has been enraptured with throughout the five chapters of this letter. If we are desiring, may I say it this way, something more than Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, then we can't have Jesus. Does that sound shocking? If you desire something more than you desire the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can't have Jesus. Because Jesus will never allow himself to be second to something else. He's the Son of God made flesh. He's the glorious one, the Savior, the only Savior. <coughs> He's the Lord of your life and your heart. And he will never coexist in your heart with an idol. If you're inviting an idol into your heart, then you're evicting Jesus. If you're placing yourself under the lordship of a false god, then the true God will not be there anymore. So I hope you can understand from this last verse of John the seriousness of idolatry. We need to keep ourselves from idols because idols prevent us from finding our life and our hope and our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what you're doing when you are bowing before an idol, whether consciously or not? You are literally separating yourself from the true source of your life and salvation. That's why it's so serious. Keep yourself from idols. Guard yourself against idols. Now, as I mentioned, in the time of John, idolatry was a bit more obvious than it might be in our society. But idols today 
Well, they're still there because idols are not just statues that people bow before. An idol, uh, simply defined, is anything in your life that is more fundamental to your life than Jesus Christ. That's what an idol is. An idol is anything that is more basic to your daily life than the Lord Jesus Christ is. Anything that captures your heart more than the Lord Jesus Christ captures your heart. Any loyalty that you might have that, that transcends your loyalty to Jesus is an idol. Any love that's in your heart, however legitimate in itself, but any love in your heart that is bigger, more ultimate than your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, that is an idol. If there's anything you would choose over and above the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, that is an idol. Now, sometimes it's hard to know our own idols because we live on our own heads and it's hard to get some objective distance from our own life and look at ourselves carefully. And so sometimes we can ask ourselves questions. Let me, let me suggest to you some diagnostic questions to help you determine the degree to which you might be bowing down before some invisible idol. Try this, uh, this diagnostic question for starters. Maybe some of you sometimes think about happiness and maybe something seems missing in your life and you, and you say to yourself, maybe you, maybe you actually verbalize it even, you would say, you know, I would, I would be happy if. I would be happy if. And then fill in the blank. I would be happy if. If something comes to me, something is added to my life that is currently not there. What do you think you need, dear brothers and sisters, right now? What do you think you need to be truly happy and fulfilled and complete, able to rejoice in the Lord? Well, once you've, once you've identified that missing thing that you are longing for, whether very uh, consciously or perhaps Unconsciously, once you find that missing thing, you know what you found? You found your idol. Here's another question you can ask yourself. When I go through trouble in my life, to whom do I turn for help? Or when I'm afraid, what is it that makes me feel safe again? Something to think about, right? During, for example, the last three years in the bet when we had a health crisis in our world. People felt in danger and they were looking for something to make them feel safe. So what is it that you need to make your life feel safe? We heard a lot about safety in those days. Or you might ask yourself the question, when, when am I truly the happiest? What is it that really gives me delight and pleasure? So I feel like I'm riding the clouds in my joy. Or what is it that I anticipate the most? Some people are anticipating the end of the school year, maybe. Maybe teachers and students alike are. Maybe someone's anticipating the end of their job, looking to retirement, as we call it. Or, I think this is one that speaks to me very powerfully, What disappointments in your life are the hardest to bear? 
And why are they so hard to bear? And what does your disappointment show you about where you have placed your identity? Now, of course, Christians confess Jesus Christ and they say thereby that they are seeking their life in their Savior. But may I remind you this afternoon, congregation, that the Bible says to us that our hearts are very deceitful, that it's super easy to fool yourself into thinking that you are finding your life in Jesus Christ when in fact the truth is you're finding your life somewhere else entirely than in Jesus Christ. You know what we too often do? We too often want to have things both ways. We certainly want the Lord Jesus Christ, but we want something more besides him before we will ever be truly happy. Let me give you some examples. I would be happy if I had Jesus and a better job. And because I don't have a better job, I'm fully within my rights not to be happy. I would be happy if I had Jesus and I had more money, more disposable income, so I wouldn't be so tight all the time. And because it is so tight all the time, I'm in my rights to be grumpy. Because, you know, you, you people don't even know what that's like to be so tight all the time. But I, I have financial constraints that it's really hard to live with. So I would be happy if I had Jesus and, and if Jesus gave me some more financial room. Or I would be happy if I had Jesus and a nicer spouse. Um, Someone told me that once in pastoral labors. I would be happy if I had a nicer spouse. It's just pretty amazing what people say. And, And they seemingly don't even realize the depths of the folly in what they're saying. But if you say, I would be happy if I had Jesus and a nicer spouse, you are committing idolatry. You might be well on the way to committing adultery as well, but that's another matter. Or some people might say, I would be happy if I had Jesus and children. Children bring happiness, we, we know that. But if you make your ultimate happiness depend on having children, then you are making an idol out of something. You're saying that my need to have children, my desire to have children, is greater than my need to just glorify God with all of my life in whatever circumstance God has placed me. Or I would be happy if I had more friends. Or I would be happy if I could just lose some weight. And so on and so forth. But you know what the Lord Jesus Christ says to us? He says to us, I want you to be happy in me. And I don't want you to think that you need anything besides me to be happy. I want to be for you what I actually am. I want to be in the depths of your consciousness. I want to be the completely sufficient source of love, of grace, of mercy, of compassion, of meaning, of purpose, of present and future hope. I want to be for you the overflowing fountain of all joy. That's what I want to be for you because that's what I am. And you truly do not need one thing besides me to have eternal life and eternal joy. I think we can see now why John ends this letter with this very serious exhortation. Idols are very subtle. They are very alluring. Sometimes they hide away in the depths of our heart and we have to be 
quite ruthless to uncover them and expose them to the light of the word. But I would say this afternoon, we, we can't afford to ignore this exhortation at the end of 1 John. We need to ponder it long, and we need to ponder it hard. And I encourage all of you to do that in the days to come. And to help you ponder, let me, let me say again what, what, what actually the essence of idolatry is. Idolatry is saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who came to this world, who laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin, who took your curse upon himself, who rose again to give you forgiveness and life everlasting. Idolatry is saying to that Jesus, Jesus, it's great everything you do and everything you are, but it's not enough for me. I can't be happy with just that. I need more to be happy. I need more than you, Lord Jesus Christ. You're my Savior, I know it, and you're my Lord, but you are not enough to ultimately satisfy me in the depths of my heart. That's idolatry. However piously it's cloaked in whatever real human pain it's stated, it's nonetheless idolatry. And we need to be able to say to people in their lives as they experience all manner of disappointments and setbacks and troubles, we need to be able to say to them and to each other, the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal life and he is enough. He is all you have ever needed. Now, if idolatry is such a great threat to all of us, how do we keep ourselves from idols? How do you actually do that? Well, part of the answer is what we've already been talking about. We can guard our hearts by asking and praying our way through diagnostic questions of various kinds. Maybe just just imagine that you're in a room with the Lord Jesus Christ, because you are. You're in this room with the Lord Jesus Christ. And... When you go home and you sit at the kitchen table, you're in that room with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you go to your bedroom at night and you have a time of prayer, then you're in that room with the Lord Jesus Christ too. And imagine that he's the one asking these diagnostic questions of you. That's how you guard your hearts against idolatry, by letting Jesus expose the idolatries through his loving prodding. It's uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. It's never fun to have someone muck around in the depths of your heart. But Jesus does that. He comes and mucks around in your heart and he brings to light things that aren't wholesome, like, like idolatry, like finding your meaning and identity and security and fulfillment in something other than Jesus Christ. I would say that the primary guard against idolatry is to make sure that you have a gospel culture in your home and in your life. The gospel tells us that anything we are looking for in an idol can be found only in Christ. And so the antidote to all idolatry is to fill your heart, your, your life, your home with the gospel, with the good and sound doctrine of Jesus Christ. This is also why we need weekly worship. This is why Jesus says in a different 
scripture, do not neglect to assemble together. He's not kidding when he says that. This is really serious stuff. Don't neglect to assemble. Don't get in the habit of neglecting to assemble. It's a really, really bad habit because it can lead to you being separated from that source of your life and salvation who is Jesus the Christ. Our weekly worship is so critical because it recenters us on the Lord Jesus. What are you doing as you worship? Well, this is what I'm doing when I worship. I'm eating the living bread and I'm drinking the living water. Are you doing that when you worship? Are you eating the living bread and drinking the living water? And as you eat that living bread and drink the living water, what happens to you? Your heart finds rest and you feel joy. You feel peace. And you are filled with the love of God. And you you are satisfied. God wants you to be satisfied as you receive his good gifts of grace in the gathering of his people. And so this is something to ask yourself. Do you find in worship a deep satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ? Someone once said to me when I was very young, he said, you can think of worship on the Lord's Day as a string wrapped around your finger to constantly remind you that only the Lord can meet your needs. Uh, I think I was about 12 when I first heard that, and somehow that's one of the things that stuck. Lots of other things from that time I forgot, but this is one thing I remembered. The Lord's Day and the gospel preaching on the Lord's Day is like a string wrapped around. Any of you still do that? You need to remember to, to do something. You need to remember to call grandma or grandpa. You need to remember to mail a letter or to go to the bank, and so you put a, finger, a string around your finger, and you can't forget because there's that string reminding you all the time. Well, the Lord's Day is such a string. God knows that our memories are short. God knows that our, we are easily misled by idolatry. And so God says, I want you to assemble together, and I promise to be there, and I promise to feed you with the bread of life, and I promise to pour into your open mouths the living water of the Spirit that we heard about this morning. And so if you want to guard your hearts against idolatry, be faithful in the assembly of the people of God, and make sure to pray every day. Because what are you doing when you're praying? You start your day with prayer, I hope. Something Christians used to just do. They started their day with prayer. And they ended their day with prayer, too. And then they also prayed before meals and after meals. And they prayed at the beginning of the school day and before lunch at school and at the end of the day at school. Life was saturated in prayer. And every time you're praying, what you're saying to God is, God, I have this fundamental human need for you. And without you, oh God, pouring into me your love and grace and mercy and compassion, my day will be a disaster. My life will be a disaster and I will be completely unfulfilled. So prayer is a confession to God. Only you, God, can satisfy the longings of my heart. No one in the universe can do that but you. Maybe I could summarize what I've been saying so far with this sentence. If your heart isn't filled with the gospel and repeatedly refilled with the gospel, it will be filled with idolatry. 
That's a spiritual law. And so as we come to the end of the sermon, I hope again that you feel the seriousness of the topic. God, we read in the second commandment, is a jealous God. And jealousy is seen negatively in our culture because people often confuse it with, with envy. Jealousy and envy are two very distinct things. Envy means that you are desiring something that is not lawfully yours. But jealousy is you desiring what is lawfully yours. Someone is taking what is lawfully yours and therefore you feel jealousy. That's very different from envy. And so when the Bible says that God is a jealous God, that's not a negative thing. It just simply means that God demands what is rightfully his. And what is rightfully his? Your trust, your confidence, your devotion, your expectation that goes to him and to no other. So you are made for God alone. And God's jealousy means that he insists that you live for him alone and that you expect all things from him alone. Now maybe this um, whole topic of the first commandment and this sermon makes you feel a little guilty. It's not a bad thing to feel guilty sometimes. But if you are feeling the weight of this commandment pressing down upon your conscience this afternoon and it's making you feel kind of miserable because you realize what an idolater you can be still, even as a Christian, then please notice with me in conclusion the words that John uses to address his readers here. What does he call them? He calls them little children. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Who's calling you little children? The Lord God is calling you little children. Don't be insulted that God calls you a little kid. You are the little children of God, the vulnerable, dependent, helpless little children of God. And he's loving you, and he's expressing his love by warning you. Don't go to his idols, but keep your heart focused on me because I am the source of your life. And those idols, they're lying to you. They can't give what they promise. They're fake. They will never give you the fulfillment that you were craving. And so think about it, dear brothers and sisters. The idols don't love you. They really don't love you at all. They don't care about you one bit. The demons don't care about you, and the demons are behind all the idolatry of this age. They don't care about you. They only care to destroy you by distracting you from the true source of your life. But who does love you? The Lord Jesus Christ does love you. He loves you to the point of becoming part of the human race. He loves you to the point of dying for you. He died for your idolatry so that you might be forgiven. And not just forgiven, but also restored to the right worship. Jesus Christ shed his blood for your forgiveness and he sends the spirit of Pentecost into your hearts so that your entire existence would be reoriented away from all those idols to the living God who alone can bless you and bring ultimate fulfillment to your heart. And so once again, little children, God's little children, so greatly loved, keep yourselves from idols. Amen.